Happy, happy Friday, my loves. We made it. Time to pop the bubbly, put your party pants on, or your most comfortable PJs, and embrace the sanctity of the weekend. Do you have any plans going on? Personally, I don't have anything too solid because it's snowing like crazy here, and unfortunately, I think I've come down with a little cold or a flu again. I guess it's just that time of year, right? Oh well. Normally, I like to have a glass of wine while I record, but today my equipment consists of some hot chai tea, chicken noodle soup, and an extra-large pink cuddly blanket from Kate Spade. I think that's the secret to making anyone feel better, right? So here's the deal. It's the holiday season, but it's also planning season for the upcoming 2018 year. Whether you're strategizing for yourself or for your business, this is the time of year to reflect on the past and look ahead into the future. And I personally love it. I love the challenge. I love the idea of consistent self-improvement. And I am so thankful that there are brilliant women on my social feeds doing the same thing and inspiring me along the way. This episode was initially going to be released on the 29th as a New Year's type of special, but I recently stumbled on an article so profound and thought-provoking that I think it's best we discuss it in advance of solidifying those New Year's resolutions. I think that you're going to get a lot out of this, and I hope that it helps you on your journey into planning and preparing for the year ahead, or that maybe it at least spurs some inspiration to help get you started, because it can be a pretty daunting task looking forward like that. So, funny fact, Last year in late November, I saw someone post a quote on Instagram that said, if you're not planning for 2017 yet, you're already behind. What? It really got to me because I had no idea what to even plan for. I was taken aback and, to be honest, I was disappointed in myself that I couldn't see that far ahead into the future or that I didn't even know where to begin. But I'm happy today because I actually know where to start how to do it, and what my business needs from me in order for it to grow into what I want it to become. That's pretty cool, right? So as the title suggests, if you listen to any podcast for the new year, make it this one. And I mean it, because the article I'm going to share with you consists of 23 awesomely thought-provoking ways to increase your productivity, your confidence, and your income. I mean, who doesn't want to improve all of that? Some of this advice is short, some of it is kind of lengthy, but all of it is 100% relevant as you plan for your best year yet. Oh, and I take no credit for this article, but I really wish I could. It's just so well written and full of advice. The author, Benjamin P. Hardy, is actually a PhD candidate in motivation psychology, so you could say the dude knows what he's talking about. And if you're interested, of course, I'll link the article in the show notes so you can read along or bookmark it or whatever else you might need. So let's get started. Let's talk about these 23 ways and really dig deep into what we need from ourselves for the upcoming year. I am so excited about this. Let's go. Success isn't having lots of money. Many people with lots of money have horribly unhappy and radically imbalanced lives. Success is continuously improving who you are, how you live, how you serve, and how you relate. So why won't most people be successful and why don't most people evolve? 
The more evolved you become, the more focused you must be on those few things which matter most. Yet, as Jim Rohn has said, a lot of people don't do well simply because they major in minor things. This article is a breakdown of 23 smart ways to focus on the major things in your life. The result is that you'll have more confidence, productivity, and income. Here they are. Number one, deal with five minutes of pain every morning and then enjoy several hours of peak productivity and fulfillment. The first three hours of your day will make or break your success in life, according to psychologist Ron Friedman. And he's right. He said, typically we have a window of about three hours where we're really, really focused. Your challenge, in all serious, is learning how to deal with five minutes of pain. Because when you set your alarm and wake up early, it will suck. It feels absolutely terrible to wake up early. But it only really feels terrible for five minutes if you immediately get out of bed and do something. Otherwise, you compound the pain by either staying in bed or by falling back asleep and feeling regret. And the longer you sit in bed, the worse it gets. Research shows that the longer you hesitate to do something, the less likely you are to do it. So the longer you sit in bed after your alarm goes off, the less likely you'll actually get out of bed. And there are three fundamental problems with laying in bed after your alarm goes off. You're lying to yourself. The night before, when you set your alarm, you told yourself you'd get up when that alarm went off. By lying to yourself, you're living in a state of internal conflict. The opposite of self-deception is self-trust, which is another word for confidence. Research in psychology has found that confidence is not a cause, but rather an effect. You gain confidence by doing what you say you're going to do. Would you make an important decision, such as a large financial investment, while in an exhausted and mentally fogged state? Probably not. Then why would you decide when to get up while in such a state? The state in which you make your decisions determines the quality of those decisions. Thus, you should make the decision about when to get up, not while you're exhausted and lying in that comfortable bed, but the night before while you're clear. Then, the moment your alarm goes off, immediately act upon the decision you previously made. Trust that decision. You made it for a reason. If you make your first decision of the day in a reactive manner, what tone are you setting for the rest of your day? And what tone are you setting for the rest of your life? The pain of waking up only lasts five minutes. Usually less, actually, if you have a strategy for waking yourself up. When your alarm goes off, don't give yourself time to negotiate with your bed. Get up immediately and proactively do something to wake yourself up. That could be getting in the shower immediately. It could be going to a different room. The main idea is that you want to change environments as quickly as possible. Your bedroom subconsciously triggers, especially at that time in the morning, the desire to sleep. When you change environments, even just going to the bathroom and flipping on the light, you'll be more alert. Research in psychology shows that changing your environment enhances your mindfulness. That five minutes of pain is the barrier stopping the majority of people from waking up early. That five minutes of pain can quite literally separate you, mentally, spiritually, socioeconomically, and in all other ways, from most people. Five minutes is likely the distinguishing factor of whether you'll have a great day or an average one, or it's the difference between having good habits and bad habits. Yet most people remain on the wrong side of those five minutes and those 30 days. If they would just endure some short difficulty, they'd open themselves to a world of opportunity. 
yet they cheat themselves and remain stuck, always wanting to make the change, but not being willing to endure a short duration of purging. Waking up early and developing a strategic routine can transform you into a very intelligent, spiritual, organized, and successful person within a relatively short period of time, approximately one to 10 years. All right, let's keep it going. Number two, start your day with your number one priority, not what's urgent. It's easy to start the day with something that seems good, but ultimately isn't all that important. Jim Collins said, good is the enemy of great. There are countless good things you could do, but what is the first thing you should do? What's the ideal way to start your day? That depends on your number one priority in life. If it's your faith, you should probably connect with God and increase your faith. If it's your business, you should probably get moving on your business. For several years, the first thing I did, the author, not me, <laughs> in the morning was go to the gym. And although health and fitness are essential to me, they are not my number one priority. If you don't make time for your number one priority, then is it really a priority? In the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey explains the importance of putting first things first. To illustrate the concept, Covey puts several rocks in a bucket. When you put the little rocks in first, you can't fit all of the big rocks. But when you start with the big rocks, the little rocks can easily fill the empty spaces. So how you start something determines your trajectory. Getting up early isn't enough. You need to put first things first. When you put your top priorities first, then you ensure they make it into the bucket of your day. After your main priorities have been completed, the rest will fill the gaps. This is essential to quality decision making. The best decision makers do things that simultaneously make everything else in their life easy. You make one decision that makes several other decisions either irrelevant or easier. When you fill your time only with the best, then everything else takes care of itself. The distractions and lower priorities are either given their allotted time or they disappear from your life because you already filled your life with stuff of much higher value. All right, number three is gonna get you in gear, I promise. Here it is. Face your resistance and do what you're avoiding. That one thing that really matters and will matter in 10 years that you don't wanna do. If you've been resisting doing something for a while, everything else in your life will suffer. For example, the author says, I'm very close to finishing my PhD, but there are some things related to completing it that I've been avoiding and procrastinating. I can very easily fill my time with a lot of other really cool, important, and interesting things. But always in the back of my mind, I know I'm neglecting something that's crucial to my personal goals. I'm putting off something that really matters to me, and thus I'm living in a state of incongruence. Interestingly, when I finally get myself to work on my dissertation, even for just a few hours, I immediately feel a surge of energy toward the other important stuff in my life. I begin to feel hope that I can succeed. I begin to see more beauty in life and in the people around me. I begin to feel motivated to succeed in my health, my relationships, and my other goals. So what have you been putting off that could really impact you within the year, within 10 years. It's something to think about. All right, number four, embrace multiple learning styles. It all happens when you face the resistance and put first things first. 
According to 50 years of research on learning theory, we all have a dominant learning style. Personally, mine is very visual. I'll just say that. We also have several backup learning styles we rely on when we're in a difficult situation. However, there are also several other learning styles that each of us neglect and avoid. So interestingly, most people have a growth mindset about the learning style they are comfortable with. For example, if you like math and learn in analytical ways, you probably believe you can get better at math. You probably approach challenges and failures as opportunities to grow. You probably seek out mentoring, education, and help. You're probably curious and seeking to expand your knowledge and horizon about that thing. However, most people have a fixed mindset about the learning styles they aren't comfortable with. For example, if you don't like writing, you probably believe you can't get better at it. There are some things you simply can't learn. They aren't in your DNA or something, right? Well, much of the work related to his dissertation is out of his dominant learning style, he says. He avoids doing it, and he prefers work that's in alignment with his dominant and developed learning styles, like writing and teaching. But when you engage in an activity you resist, you activate areas of your brain and emotions that you've suppressed. You make tangible progress toward goals that are currently outside of your comfort zone. You open yourself up to a new world of learning and experience, and you make new connections in your brain. You gain confidence in yourself by watching yourself do something difficult. You gain more confidence by doing something you believe you should do and intrinsically want to do, but that is difficult. I see many people, for example, who want to be artists, whether that be a writer, a musician, etc. But many of these people never succeed because the business and marketing side of being an artist are outside of their dominant learning style, and they refuse to learn those essential components. They have a fixed mindset about business and marketing, and therefore end up settling for a life they don't really want. Ironically, if they just get good at business and embrace some of their difficult emotions and underdeveloped learning styles, their art would improve. It would improve because they demonstrate to themselves how truly committed they are to their dreams. They're committed enough to do stuff that sucks. They're committed to not just being a dreamer, but a professional. All right, number five and six are awesome, so let's keep going. Number five, how you do anything is how you do everything. This is fact. When one area of your life is out of alignment, everything else suffers. You may compensate in one area of your life for a while. For example, you may obsess about your work or your health while neglecting your higher priorities. But this is extremely unsustainable. Eventually, and always, it will come back to you. The things you excel at will eventually become your greatest weaknesses unless you keep them in proper balance. So number six, know and then strategically define your why, and you get to decide your reasons. The purpose of clarifying your why is twofold. It leads to motivation, and operating from your deepest conviction creates authentic and optimal performance. So how do you get to your why? Well, it's really not that hard. There's a brilliant strategy from Joe Stumpf, who's an author, CrossFit champion, and renowned transformational coach that we're gonna share with you today. Think about what it is you want, and then ask yourself this simple question. What about blank is important to me? Just answer the first thing that comes to mind. Don't overcomplicate it. If your goal is to work from home, then ask yourself the question, what about working from home is important to me? Your answer might be something like, well, to have a more flexible schedule. But then put that into the previous question. 
What about having a more flexible schedule is important to me? Feeling less stressed and controlled. What about feeling less stressed and controlled is important to me? Well, when I work better and am happier, then I can manage myself. So what about working better, being happy, and managing yourself is so important? It's good to go at least seven questions deep into this exercise. If you're answering yourself honestly, then it will expose two things. One, key events that have shaped you, often from childhood, and two, key beliefs and values that you hold about the world. If you can't get to the core of why you're doing what you're doing, you can then realize just how important that thing is to you. Far too often we only think of our base level motivations for what we're doing, which is less personally meaningful, and therefore our performance does not come from our core. So for example, starting a business makes you have more flexibility in your schedule. Yeah, sure, that's important, but that's not that inspiring. So why do you want more flexibility? Go deeper, a lot deeper. And once you get the crux, then remind yourself daily of that reason for starting a business. Here's what's great though. You get to decide how you frame your why. You get to decide your reasons for what you do. And those reasons come from you. They don't need to be reassigned from an outside source. And to quote Diana Ross, you can't just sit there and wait for people to give you that golden dream. You've got to get out there and make it happen for yourself. In the epic TED Talk, philosopher Ruth Chang explains how to make really, really hard choices. You get down to the why, and then ultimately, you define that why for yourself. Yes, you have a story, but you get to shape that story. You get to shape your reasons, and when you do, then not only can you act from your highest values, but you get to proactively decide and define what those values are. Alright, so numbers 7 through 9 get really personal, so get ready for this. Number 7, be a giver, not a matcher or a taker. Many people are takers, especially those who desperately want success. They engage in relationships solely for what they can get out of those relationships. To put it bluntly, these people are transactional. Everything in their life is a transaction or an exchange. Takers operate out of scarcity. They don't truly give. Their giving only goes to a certain point. Moreover, they are only grateful when they get what they want. They undervalue what others give. If the relationship isn't giving them what they want, there is no appreciation and the relationship ends. So that brings us to number eight. Only engage in transformational relationships because all transactional ones will end soon anyways. When two givers come together, transformation can occur where the new whole becomes infinitely more than the sum of its parts. When a giver attempts to work with a taker, that relationship will only last until the taker has what they want, or until the giver realizes what is truly happening. According to search research from Wharton professor Adam Grant, givers are both the least and most successful types of people. Some people give to a fault. They give everything they've got, and most importantly, they give to the wrong types of people. When you give to takers, the pie gets smaller and eventually becomes exhausted. When you give to givers, the pie continuously gets bigger and bigger. 
And thus, being a giver isn't enough. You need to give to the right people if you want your success and your relationships to last. Who you surround yourself with and who you work with really matters. I've engaged in many business relationships over the past years, some with givers and some with takers, says the author. Takers are very hard to spot in the beginning because they are very manipulative and cunning. Strategic coach founder Dan Sullivan says he can spot a taker within 10 minutes of being with them. Takers are motivated by greed, not growth. You have to be really intuitive to spot the subtle cues. And I've decided that, to the extent that I can, I'm no longer going to engage in long-term relationships with takers. I'm done with transactional relationships. I prefer relationships that lead to growth and transformation. In order for these types of relationships to exist, you must be willing to face brutal truths. Transformational relationships are messy. If you trust someone, you'll be willing to engage in ideological conflict with that person. That conflict is not about the person, but rather about moving past breakthrough and toward clarity. Conflict is rough. Most people quit relationships when conflict arises. You'll know someone is a giver when they genuinely help you without asking for anything in return, and they are truly, genuinely happy for the success they help you have. Those are the types of people you want to work with. Givers also stay with you when you're at a low point. They stick with you through conflicts and challenges. So that leads us to number nine. Don't overvalue what you contribute to your relationships while undervaluing what others contribute. Think about your relationships. In most of those, do you overvalue or undervalue what you contribute? And moreover, do you overvalue or undervalue what others in the relationship contribute? Usually, people overvalue what they contribute and undervalue what others contribute. If you're a giver, you value and appreciate what others contribute. You're genuinely grateful. You don't take others for granted. You don't keep score in your relationships. All right, I love how he phrased number 10. Work with people who are craftsmen, not salesmen, but who also know how to market. And this is a great quote he shared by Steve Jobs. Be a yardstick of quality. Some people aren't used to an environment where excellence is expected. Similar to the points above, the quality of life you have and the quality of the work you do is based on who you spend your life with. I've seen through multiple collaborations that most people have low standards for themselves in their work. They procrastinate, then scramble to get things done last minute, resulting in a lack of quality in the final product. They're takers meaning they try to do as little as possible rather than trying to do as much as possible. How a person does anything is how they do everything. If they lack details in their work, they lack important details in the design of the other areas of their lives. Most recently, I've decided to work with people who are true craftsmen and craftswomen. Yes, the process may be a little bit slower, but the final outcome is 10 times or 100 times better. Things are less rushed. Quality of life is better. Quality of planning is more thorough. Expectations of results are much higher. Learning is much deeper. And there's less stress and feeling like an imposter. When I say quality of life, I mean that in the literal sense. Working with people who expect a lot of themselves in their work, but also in the foods they eat, how they spend their time, who they spend their time with, the quality of products they buy, etc. Far more attention to detail. Far more passion for living 
for more giving to life and experiencing moments. There are lots of people who are strictly salesmen out there. These people are generally takers. They're really good at talking, but their life is a mess. You want to work with people who are craftsmen and professionals. Yet these artists are also scientists and marketers. Their first priority is in doing brilliant work, but they aren't starving artists. They study the business side as well, and also the strategy and the marketing. They can't be a one-trick pony. So you need to work with people who care about the success and reach of your work and who will help you raise the expectations you have for yourself, for your work, and for the service you can do in the world. So number 11, elevate your sense for what you deserve in your life because what you receive will elevate how you contribute. As you seek to give more, to genuinely be a giver and not a taker in life, your sense of what you can have expands and multiplies. You realize that your life is a reflection of what you believe you deserve. You sense what you deserve grows as you have a greater desire to help other people. You end up needing to use your time better because you have important work to do, because you no longer settle for less. Your standards for yourself, the world, and the people around you increase. Your expectations become far more positive and clear, and what you expect is generally what you get. Psychologists have developed a full-fledged theory around this idea, and it's one of the dominant theories in motivation psychology. It's called expectancy theory. It's based on three things. How bad you want something, how much you believe you can actually have or do what you want, and your belief that the means by which you seek your goal will actually bring about the desired result. You get in life what you expect you will. To quote Dan Sullivan, our eyes only see and our ears only hear what our brain is looking for. You elevate what you expect when you become increasingly capable and confident. When you develop skills and abilities coupled with faith and resolve, your future becomes predictable. It becomes an increasingly upward cycle of expectancy. You know you can do more. You've watched yourself grow and transform and you have higher and higher standards for yourself. You watch as your world becomes better and better. All right, this is a weird question, but uh, how's your butt? How's your butt doing? Is it, uh, is it in gear? Has it been kicked yet? <laughs> We're about halfway through these lists of 23 smart ways to increase your confidence, productivity, and income, and I'll be honest with you, I am I'm really feeling the heat right now. There's a lot of stuff that I'm applying to my planning for both now and into the future. So thank you so much for staying tuned. I just had another cough drop and I'm feeling ready to get through this last back half of the list. So let's get going. Number 12, elevate your sense for what you can contribute because if you're willing to work and learn, you can do masterful things. People don't learn in the abstract. They learn through doing. Paralysis by analysis will stop you from developing a sense of true mastery. Mastery comes from embracing difficult emotions. You'll face difficult emotions because, in order to gain true mastery, you must understand all sides of something. You can't just have a single dimensional understanding. You must have a four or five dimensional understanding. You need to be able to integrate what you know with tons of new information and to be able to quickly connect your understanding with things from seemingly disconnected domains. This requires embracing all of the learning styles listed above. It requires breaking past emotional blocks. 
It requires expanding your sense for what you can do and achieve and contribute. As you grow in your abilities, your sense of what you can contribute will expand. Naturally, you'll desire to help other people. You'll have a broadened view of the world. You'll see things more clearly. You'll see things differently than the masses. Consequently, you'll be able to solve problems that most people can't solve because they're blind to them. As Dr. Wayne Dryers has said, when you change the way you see things, the things you see change. The more education a person gets, the more empathetic they become. There is no power in ignorance. So that brings us to number 13. Decide what kind of life you want, then figure out how to get it. So when the why is clear, you'll figure out how. Very few people live within their means. Most people, particularly in Western culture, have bought heavily into consumerism. They live paycheck to paycheck. For most people, the notion of living within your means is the best advice that could be given. And indeed, living within your means should be the foundation of a healthy financial life. But that's where most financial advice stops. Rather than basing your lifestyle on what you're currently making, a far more powerful and creation-based approach is to proactively decide what you want and then figure out how to get it. When you're a giver, it's not about having more solely for the sake of it, although having more is certainly not a sin. The problem is becoming absorbed in stuff, trying to keep up, etc. In an interview at the annual Genius Network in 2013, Tim Ferriss was asked, with all of your various roles, do you ever get stressed out? Do you ever feel like you've taken on too much? And Ferris responded, of course I get stressed out. If anyone says they don't get stressed out, they're lying. But one thing that mitigates that is taking time each morning to declare and focus on the fact that I have enough. I have enough. I don't need to worry about responding to every email today. If they get mad, that's their problem. Money is a tool. The more you make, the more good you do. Rather than fitting your dreams into your current lifestyle, fit your lifestyle around your dreams. Decide what you want. Create a bold vision for your life. Decide how you want to contribute, how you want to live. Then figure out the means of making that happen. When your why is clear and powerful, you'll figure out the means to make it happen. And that's how faith as a principle of power works. So number 14 really means a lot to me, and I think it's important to talk about around this time of year. And here it is. Serve and give as much as you can, not to boast or to put others down, but to have a clear conscience. There are two reasons to be a giver. All the other reasons stem from these. Number one, you genuinely want to help other people. And number two, to have a clear conscience. You don't give to boast. You don't give to put others in debt to you. You don't give to get ahead. You don't give to make others feel inferior. You give because you must. You can't not give. You give of yourself and you organize your life to give so you can have a clear conscience about how you're living your life. You give because you understand the law of abundance. You give because you believe in humanity. When you have a clear conscience, you operate better in all areas of life. You sleep better and deeper. You're more present in all situations. You digest food better, you're more present to the needs of others, you learn faster, you're more guided and inspired in your course of life, you're more discerning about decisions and relationships. Now let's get into some finance. Number 15, automate your income as quickly as possible to free up time. 
because there is lots of money to be made and you can help a lot of people this way. The sooner you create passive income streams, the better. In the book, The Millionaire Next Door, Dr. Thomas Stanley presents his findings on one of the largest studies of the American wealthy ever performed. And here's the gist of the book he teaches. Courage can be developed, but it cannot be nurtured in an environment that eliminates all risks, all difficulty, all dangers. It takes considerable courage to work in an environment in which one is compensated according to one's performance. Most affluent people have courage. What evidence supports this statement? Most affluent people in America are either business owners or employees who are paid on an incentive basis. So give 10 times the value of what you say you will. Number 16s. How do you give passive income? How do you create a sustainable, incredible business? You give way more than people pay you for. You focus on value, not price. When you focus on value, you can actually charge very large sums of money because you know people will get at least 10 times the value of what they paid for. When you're a giver, you must give more value than people pay. You do it because you find joy in doing your very best work. You do it because you value the fact that people came to you. It's really not about the price. People care about value. If you can blow people's minds for less than $50, it won't be hard to get them to pay you more. You have to earn people's trust. You have to genuinely create stuff that helps them. What if you didn't make a penny until people got the results you promised them? How would that change your work? How would that change the quality you put in? That should be your benchmark, and then you should help them even more. All right, all you entrepreneurs, this one might sound a little counterintuitive, but give me a second. Number 17, give away most of your work for free. We live in what have some called the thank you economy, and here's how the thank you economy works. People are getting used to having everything at their fingertips. People are getting used to having their needs met quickly and cheap, and interestingly enough, people are also lowering their standards for the quality of services they are getting and the information they're consuming because so much stuff is now available for free. So if you want to build an enormous clientele, you also need to give away lots for free, but your free stuff should be so valuable that it makes people want to come back for more. And even after people have been coming paying customers, you should give them lots for free. You build trust and community through serving people. Transformational relationships begin with giving, not a transaction. Do transformational relationships involve transactions? Absolutely, usually far bigger ones than transactional relationships. But those transactions are done for an entirely different purpose. They're done as a win-win, not as a win-lose. These transactions usually occur after one or both parties have been abundant benefactors. Why else would someone invest? So that brings us to number 18, make more stuff, but only really good stuff. Your behavior is what alters your identity. Most people raised in a Western culture have this idea exactly backwards. We've obsessed ourselves so much with the mind that it's become everything. We think the mind is the cause of everything when it's not. Mountains of research in social psychology portray that self-perception is the product of choices and environments. This is very good news. It means you can change your identity by simply changing your behavior and your environment. If you want more creativity, you simply need to do more creative work. 
You battle the resistance and get to work. Then creativity becomes non-stop. If you want to be a morning person, start getting up early. Before you know it, you'll identify as a morning person, both to yourself and other people. Make more stuff and your creativity will increase. Give more love and your ability to love and receive love will increase. Be more successful and you'll become more successful. Ha! <laughs> so number 19, become the best in the world at what you do. Know your niche, know your audience, and serve that audience better than anyone else's. So what is it that you actually do? And more importantly, who are the people you help? And even more important than that, what is the problem you're trying to solve for those people? Don't define your audience or your ideal customer by their demographics. Instead, define your audience by the problems they have. What are they challenged with and why does this matter? How can you help? How can you help better than anyone else in the world? How can you help them so much that be, you become a hero to them? How can you give so much to these people that you completely change their lives for the better? In order to do this, you not only need to know your audience, you need to know your niche. You need to develop the skills, philosophies, and services that will solve their problems. The people you serve may not even know they have the problem, but you do, and you're going to create a new and better future for them because you're both a craftsman and a giver, a true professional. All right, we are on the last leg of this list, and these get really good. We're going to be digging really deep, so follow with me. Number 20, invest heavily in yourself. The more you invest, the more committed you'll be. Throughout the author's doctoral research as an organizational psychologist, he says that the singular concept he focused his studies on is called the point of no return, which is the moment it becomes easier to move toward your goals than to avoid them. It's the instant that pursuing your highest ambitions becomes your only option. So how does this work? Primarily, it happens in the form of an intense investment, which forces you to move forward out of compulsion. Once invested to the point you must go forward, your identity and complete orientation toward your objective changes. Because you must go forward, you're no longer confused about what you need to do. You're no longer uncertain if you're going to act. You have already acted, and now you need to make good on that action. And there's several psychological reasons why you need to make good on that action. Number one, to not look like an idiot, although this isn't very powerful, but to also justify your investment to be consistent with the behaviors you've performed, and because you truly want to achieve a particular goal, and you've now created external conditions that will eventuate in a self-fulfilling prophecy. And here's his favorite narrative from his master's thesis, where he interviewed several entrepreneurs and wannabe entrepreneurs. The main difference? Entrepreneurs all had some form of the point of no return experience, whereas wannabe entrepreneurs didn't have such experiences. One of the people he interviewed was a 17-year-old kid who wanted to sell shoes. He and his partner, one of his old high school friends, invested $10,000 into a shipment of shoes. And here's how he described that point of no return. Yeah, once we all had all of our money in the same inventory, it was all or nothing. That really scared me, just knowing that it was like do or die. I had to sell the shoes. You couldn't turn back. You couldn't just get rid of them and get the cash back. You had to go forward. So the follow-up question was, well, did anything change after this moment? And here's what he said. 
After that, once I realized that we were truly going and everything, I think it just really opened me up to what I was able to do. At that point, I was like, okay, I actually started a company, I've invested in it, and now I need to run this thing. And that's when I think I really saw that I was running the company. It really changed my leadership role with my partners. So once you've moved past your point of no return, you've fully bought into your own vision. You're committed. Your role, and thus your identity, changes. You've removed alternatives that were nothing more than distractions anyways. You've forced your own hand, and now you must move in the direction you want to go. You're all in. So what about you? Are you invested? Your level of success can almost directly be measured to how personally invested you are. So as a side note, I actually reached the point of no return recently when we decided to start this podcast and to do video. Um, My parents saw my first video and they were so supportive of it that they decided to get me some equipment for better lighting for Christmas. And that was a really big deal to me because we aren't really celebrating Christmas together this year. And the fact that they would do the research and send me this amazing Christmas gift from across the country was truly profound. And I really want to, you know, be successful for them and to show them that the investment they made in me was worth it. And I know how much money matters right now to everyone in the world and the fact that they would spend that kind of money on me was just so kind. And I guess right now I'm actually giving a shout out to my parents. So thank you, mom and dad. (laughs) I really appreciate everything you've done for me and um, your success, your help in my success, more like it, um, really keeps me going. So thank you. All right, let's keep going. Become a speaker and teach others what you've learned. Number 21. No matter which business you are in, your success will 10x if you learn how to speak clearly, powerfully, and simply. Seriously, why are Elon Musk's companies so successful? And are they really the most innovative? Maybe. But Elon also understands the importance of getting the message out. He understands the power of publicity. He regularly gets in front of the world to share his message because he understands the power of story. If you can teach clearly and speak powerfully, your whole career will change. As Simon Sinek said, there are only two ways to influence human behavior. You can manipulate it or you can inspire it. Very few people or companies can clearly articulate why they do what they do. By why, I mean your purpose, your cause or belief. Why does your company exist? Why do you get out of bed every morning and why should anyone care? People don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. We are drawn to leaders and organizations that are good at communicating what they believe. Their ability to make us feel like we belong, to make us feel special, safe, and not alone is part of what gives them the ability to inspire us. All right, we're down to our last two lessons. Are you feeling it yet? Are you like in that totally zen inner thinking mode. I don't know how you describe it, but I know when I read something like this, I'm like, damn, I got to get it together. (laughs) So let's go. Number 22, learn in public. If you want to learn something fast, learn in public, learn through raw experience, learn through failure, but put yourself in a position where you're getting actual coaching. Surround yourself with a support system of people who love helping you and investing in you. You do this by being both a giver and also by being a good receiver. When people help and teach you, be an incredible student. 
When you take what people teach and get incredible results, people want to help you more. Your results become a reflection of them. It takes courage to learn in public. It takes courage to practice in public. Most people won't do it, but if you do, your courage will re be rewarded 10x because you'll both learn 10x faster and you'll also garner huge respect. So number 23, woo, we made it. <laughs> this is very important. Take a few minutes every night to mentally prepare yourself for the next day. You need to have made the firm decision that you'll get up when the alarm goes off. We're back to waking up in the morning and getting up with your alarm. The success of your morning begins the night before. All you have to do is spend a few minutes making firm decisions about what you'll do when you first wake up. You don't need a huge to-do list. You just need to know the first thing you're going to do. Right before bed, you set the stage for all that will happen even while you sleep. Just a few minutes of thoughtful and affirmative meditation will put your subconscious on a path toward achieving your goals. When you wake up the next morning, you'll be primed for success. The only thing you need to do is immediately get out of bed. Don't renegotiate with your pillow. You're in no state to make a decision. You already made that decision. So just get up, get moving, and have an incredible morning. Then have an incredible day. Then have an incredible year. And then make an amazing life. Successful mornings don't happen by chance. They happen by choice. Neither does a successful life. Okay, consider my butt completely kicked right now. I read this article several days ago, and I've read it multiple times since then, and to be honest, I cannot stop thinking about it. I love all of the advice packed in here, and I hope you did too. So, shout out to Benjamin Hardy, the author. Thank you so much for giving me the butt kicking I needed to be a better human and a more successful entrepreneur into the new year. And you know what? I'm not going to wait until January 1st to start improving. I'm starting today and tomorrow when I wake up. Thank you so much again for listening to another episode of News Macaroons on Air. Our next Monday Muse segment will air, well, you know, next Monday, and I'm already excited about that one, too. I love podcasting with you guys. It's just so much fun. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to receive notifications every time we publish a new episode. I think there's a nifty new way that you can actually rate it now. You don't even have to write a review. You just tap the stars below to give it the rating. I would love for you to do that because I really want to know what you think. I love you guys so much. Thank you so much for being my reason to get up in the morning and to make fun stuff that I hope inspires you as much as it inspires me. Until next time, cheers.